This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. All you out there, whatever your hands are up to, may they be blessed with the wisdom of Omo Bono. May your violin making skills be elevated. May your body's joints not wear out in the making process. May your eyes remain sharp. Brandon, I have readers as of last week and needed them. <laughs> and and I, I can see so much better at my desk. It's amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm your host, Rosie DeLoach, coming at you from Caraway Strings in Dallas. Brandon Godman, which of your two shops are you at right now? Hey, Rosie. I am in San Francisco at the Fiddle Mercantile, right downtown in the Mission. Okay. How's it going over there right now? It's going great. It's been a pretty week. We've had a little rain, and I would be happy if we had rain every day in San Francisco, but... You know, okay. we will take every bit we can get. I'm getting to the point in Dallas where I'm ready for the temperature not to go up anymore. No more. We're done. Yeah. 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 Let's press pause. I definitely am more of a cold weather person. <laughs> <laughs> well, for today, we've worked so hard on this already, what we're about to present to you guys. And I would say personal blend. If we're doing a mix of romance and reality, this is this is pretty balanced this time. So we've got uh, the discipline it takes to really master this field, and then the romance is handling the really really nice stuff in this field. What do you think about that, Brandon? Yeah, I think it's a perfect blend. Um, I'm really excited about the subject matter of today, and today's subject is actually part one of a three, yes, a three-part series on instrument identification. Identification. This is an episode that you wanted to cover initially when you came on to OMO. The more we got into it, the bigger it got. What got you curious? Well, Rosie, I feel we could easily spend 10 episodes on exploring the many facets of instrument and bow identification. I mean, it's a really exciting topic and it's cavernous, right? Yeah. Um, Humans have been making violin shaped objects for over 450 years now. And that's a huge amount of instruments and makers to learn to differentiate between not to mention throwing bows into the equation. Yeah. And varying degrees of record keeping in all those years. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of time. When starting in this trade, it can feel like an impossible task to be able to recognize all the differences. That alone categorize them and make the attributions. However, we have to remember that all experts in our field had to start with encountering their first violin-shaped object. And I love that. I love that term, a violin-shaped object, right? We, We use that term when people buy stuff off the internet, we call it a VSO. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, Hey, uh, depends <laughs> on what shop you're shopping at, but I love seeing actually violin shape object in an auction catalog. That's great. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, so they have to see their first violin shaped object. I mean, presentation. And then after that, we're really curious about what I got them from that moment to actually seeing the instrument, you know, seeing the violin for all the details that it has, all the lines, the curves, the varnish, the patina, the materials used, the construction, the tool marks, the bee stings, the F-hole shape, the F-hole placement, purfling, purfling size, purfling color, purfling materials, blocks, what kind of blocks, neck graft, measurements, outline, seat belts, one-piece rib, two-piece rib, Brandon, neck Brandon, shape. Brandon, 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 Brandon. <sighs> Leave some for our interview. We have a lot to cover. I'm just saying. Yeah, we do. So today, it's all about the eyes, Rosie. The things that we explore here are what does it take to develop a discerning eye? Does expertise require a photographic memory? How do you document, categorize, and catalog what you're learning? And we've got three experts in the field. Christopher Rooning, who is just so lovely. And then we've got Ben Hebert, who will educate us not only on violins, but to his chagrin, stamp collecting. Not stamp licking, stamp collecting. Collecting. Yes. Rounding out this discussion is Sawyer Thompson, a budding expert who is training his eyes on bows. Uh, You know what? I saw him purchase a, a lot, not as in like a bunch, but a a lot what it you know a grouping of those and it was incredible to watch him pour over this stuff for hours and hours and pick apart these details that my eyes just can't see well i mean one of the best ways to learn expertise or a starting place is just to watch the experts work i mean sit in an auction room and just watch them all go down the row and see what they look at it's amazing so We're going to be right back after this break with the experts and their expert point of view on expertise. Hey, Homo Sapiens. A big thank you out there from Learning Trade Secrets. This has been their first year back fully operational since COVID and classes have been filling up. Right now, our editor, Jason Peoples, and our co-host, Brandon Godman, is out there enjoying Tom Cruen's Advanced Restoration Workshop which is not one to be missed. If you get the chance next year, take this class. This summer, there are still a few spots available for the Intermediate to Advanced Bow Restoration Workshop with David Orlin, July 24th through 29th, featuring a small class size. You've got that nice bow in the corner of the shop and you're not quite sure how to execute a frog repair? Learning Trade Secrets has got you covered. Look them up, learningtradesecrets.com. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be as dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level, from the beginner student to the Minnesota orchestra performer. House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a bow rehair, while nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You might even find Aaron carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup, while Nick perfects the perfect fit of a soundpost patch. And Ty is putting the final polish on a new set of pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, 
Check out houseofnote.com, where you can commission a purple electric violin made by Lyle and other things, like their wide selection of bows and showroom instruments, or sign up for a rental instrument online. House of Note. By musicians, for musicians. With us, we have Chris Rooning coming to us from Brookline, Massachusetts. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here again with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, we're definitely excited to talk about expertise with you. Um, you touched on some of this when you joined OMO back in episode 35. And um, if anyone's interested, you can go back and listen to the full story of Chris Rooning. But today we're going to dive in a little bit deeper to the expertise side of what you do. Could you talk a little bit about maybe when you realized that you had a natural eye, if in fact you think that is a thing for someone and an inclination to just realizing the differences between instruments? Well, I was pretty young when I started working in a shop. I think I was about 12 or 13 years old. One of the first things I was interested in was kind of understanding the truth, being a truth seeker and understanding what were these objects. And I kept asking questions of my boss and the other people working in the shop. And I, I just never got any kind of satisfactory answers. Um, and I, I kept looking at the violin and I, I didn't really get it. And I think the first thing is you don't really know whether you have an aptitude for it right away. You have to build a base of knowledge that informs you about these objects. At first, you know, the first time you look at violins, they all look the same. You, you hear customers saying that to us. Yeah. They all look the same to me. How do you tell? And I, I remember the first thing somebody was, one of my colleagues at the shop was trying to show me the difference between a Del Jesu and a Strad sound hall. And I was trying to put it into words and for myself and I could sort of see it, but I really couldn't that well. So I, I think in the beginning, it's just really slow. And I think that's, that's the thing at least for me it was. I don't know, maybe some people are automatically good at it. But then, then I guess when I started, I spent a bit more time, I started noticing the difference. And um, that was by holding them in my hands, and it was very tactile, sort of seeing seeing a mitten-involved violin as opposed to a, a Mirapur violin, let's say. Mm-hmm. And do you feel, something I keep going back to is just the thought of a discerning eye. And as you develop your discerning eye for violins, did you notice differences in other stuff too? Like just being able to pick any object, a steak knife, for example, <laughs> you know, were you able to just pick it apart and see all the differences? Well, looking at it back, looking back on it now, I think the thing is, I think that people either have a sort of an analytical memory, let's say for numbers, for names and other people have are good with maps and with a visual memory. Mm -hmm. And I guess I must have been pretty good with my visual memory because I remembered the violins that I was handling or seeing or buying and selling. And I, and I think actually buying and selling really helps focus your brain because when you really have to study something and if you make a mistake, you're going to lose, you know, what little money you have. I think it's really helps you focus. So for me, it was buying these instruments for our little family shop and starting to understand what they were and having good mentor 
that was really kind of important for me. I think somebody who could sort of steer you in the right direction so you, you don't just get spinning in circles. Yeah. Chris, one of my questions for you literally was going to say, someone said of you, you learn the quickest when you put your money on the line. And you just talked about that. <laughs> Can you offer any more about any personal experiences with that? Well, you also learn from your mistakes. And I remember putting $45,000 of every penny I had in my young business scraped together in traveler's checks and going to a guy in Italy, in Bologna, Italy, and buying a violin that I was sure was a presenda. And um, being told by the few experts that were available to me that no, it wasn't. Um, I still remember that violin like it was yesterday. I ended up losing a fair bit of money on it. And, and I learned an important lesson then, which was just how careful you have to be and how doubting you have to, everything is guilty until proven innocent. You have to be a little bit scared of your own competence. You don't want too much of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that violin, I'd love to see it again. It was sold in Japan. I think actually I might've been right. I think it might've been a presenda made by Roca, which is a mm -hmm. subject that people hadn't even talked about in those days. So I'd love to see it again and see, see exactly where it fell. Sure. Because your eyes are in a different place now. My eyes are the same. Cause I still, I can see that violin right now. If I, mm -hmm. you know, in every detail, but my knowledge is better. Yeah. Yeah. My experience has been is I've grown my experience since that time. One of the funny things about, you know, Charles Beer, let's say, who's my number one mentor and the greatest expert I ever met, he started off by studying Strads and Del Jesus and working his way down the ladder. And maybe he could tell the difference between a Ventapani and a Antonio Galliano the the second, but I think he doesn't go much lower than that. I was the opposite. And actually most of the people I know started off at the bottom and start and gradually start working up to the top. And most people, unless they're handling the really big instruments, they don't really have the, the exposure to sort of learn, learn those makers, unless you really decide you want to. And then you just have to apply yourself to, to really seeking them out and you know, it's kind of funny. This a strat, identifying a strat is much easier than identifying a, a scarampella. Let's say hmm. um, those those guys follow, followed certain rules uh, in different cities, and as long as you really analyze them and study them, you can you can learn those subjects a little bit more thoroughly than you can with, let's say, modern Italian makers. Yeah. So you've touched on the discipline of studying. It seems and. As you're developing your eye, I mean, I remember you talking about during COVID, you know, going down um, certain rabbit holes and really studying certain makers. As you're studying, do you have a real discipline of what you allow yourself to see, what you allow yourself to study and not look at too? I think it's really helpful when you're looking at a violin not to have any preconceived ideas about what it is. So somebody shouldn't be talking in your ear about, hey, look at my, you know, Scarampella. Isn't it great? Isn't it great? Isn't it great? 
um, somebody who wants it to be, you have to be kind of objectively looking at something. And, you know, I love to look at the back first. That's what Dario Dottilli told taught me. And I think that's kind of the, the, the idea is that when you're first looking at something, when you're looking at the back, you get an idea of the model. You're getting an idea of the age, uh, of course, the wood and the varnish and something to do with the purfling and the way the edges and so forth are done. And hopefully you're getting some kind of idea of what it is before you flip it over. And But before you flip it over, I think it's really important to just pause for a second. And if you think you've got an idea what it is, just pull up a an image of that, what that top should look like before you actually look at it. So so let's say you're looking at a, a, a Gragnani back. You think it's a Gragnani. What does the sound hole look like? And what does that arching look like? And then you turn it over and see, and see if it looks like what you would, were expecting. That's kind of a little trick I do a lot of time because otherwise you can so, sort of fool yourself. You know, guys, what I was going to just say was, you know, we started off when I, I didn't, I was looking for the truth. The place I was working was um, a shop in Philadelphia, Primavera's shop. And they were more interested in what they could sell something at as rather than what it was. Mm. And, and I didn't even know there was really a subject of violin expertise until one guy that was there told me I should go see Dario Dottilli. And I did. I think I was... 17 or 18 years old when I went to see Dario and that's the first time I realized it was even a subject like that people could even look at a violin and know something and I just watched him his system the system he the way he looked at instruments you know what I said about looking at the back first and then flipping it over and figuring out is it composite and going through all those steps that you you need to go through it was like you know the, the sun came out and, and, you know, the clouds parted and, and all of a sudden I realized this is a really interesting subject. And, and that's, that's when I really started going down to see him every chance I could. So hmm. I, I'd go down there and I'd always bring him something, whether it was a cantaloupe or a bottle of wine um, or a <laughs> loaf of bread. And he, he was so generous and nice to me. Uh, just, I'd bring him a few pretty pathetic instruments or sometimes something halfway decent. And he'd take the time to discuss it with me and then sh then me let me go into his archive and look at the pictures. And I would see how he had everything organized. I, at that point, I, I decided to go to every single auction I could, whether I could afford it or not, in London. And I never missed one for, for 25 years. Mm -hmm. hmm. uh, just a little side note. I feel like Stories about the gift giver gifts given among luthiers could fill a whole episode. <laughs> and oh, I like yeah. that you picked up on that early days in your journey. Yeah. Uh, so you're telling us about your early days with Dario and his lessons to you about seeing. And you talked about turning the instrument around, looking at the back first. Is there any other uh, knowledge that you would want to impart to someone else on how to see especially in their early days? Well, just to continue with this, you know, my next real mentor was Robert Bine, who was even more analytical than, 
than um, than Dario. Of course, Dario was also Robert Bynes' teacher, but Robert um, really broke them down into their into their components and analyzed them. Let's say we're talking about the shape of the wings. Are they tapered? Are they square? Are they flared? Are they fluted? Um, this, the location of the sound holes, are they located in the standard Cremonese way or they're sitting low on the top or they're sitting up high? Are the circles round or and are they were they cut with a circle cutter or are they an approximation of a circle? Um, you know, there's so many details like that that he really cataloged in his own way, in a very systematic way. And he also was much more organized with building a database and building a more fail-safe photo archiving system. So those are all tools, you know, we could talk about at length, but um, the thing I learned from him most was the discipline. And he told me, I repeat it to everybody I can, if you want to be a violin expert, it's just like any other profession. If you want to be a doctor, you go to medical school, you study, you know, what you study. Mm-hmm. And the same with any profession you choose. And you don't learn by osmosis. You don't, if, if you're a violin maker, you don't just automatically become an expert unless you really devote yourself to it. So that's the thing I think I didn't really realize until a little bit later that if I really want to be good at this, I have to take notes about everything I see. I have to take photographs and I have to be very systematic about learning all these little points and details. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is something anyone could learn? Yes, but I, I do think you have to have, for starters, you have to have some kind of visual memory. You have to have access to, instruments to see but that you can you can do no matter where you are i think you just have to make it a priority to to spend the time to do it however you can going to museums going to backstage at a concert however you can find instrument to see i'm just curious um how important do you think it is to exercise yourself to have a conviction behind an attribution when you're looking at something and say, yeah, I actually think this is something. Well, that gets back to what I said before about one, one way to do that is to put your money on the line because okay. that's the way you're going to really, <laughs> yeah, you, you really are focused. Your brain is focused before you uh, write that check. Um, but you know, what we try to do in the shop, in my shop is I make somebody spit it out, say what they think, even if they don't really have a good idea, write it, we write it on a piece of paper because you have to, at some point you have to commit to what it is. And that way, once you learn what, learn what it is, you remember better. Mm -hmm. Just like when you fill in a crossword puzzle, once that, once, if you do it with pen, once it's in there, you know, it's in there, it's in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you for your time, Christopher Rooney. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Guys, without further ado, Ben Heppert. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm good now that you're here. So we are diving into 
the genesis of identification. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of training your eye. Well, I think I think the first thing that I w- want to say is to, to to move on slightly with that is that when you're at school, you go through lots of tests, and you know teachers will tell you that there's things about verbal reasoning and numerical reasoning, and I think that there's also a big thing which really you know schools aren't good at, which is which is visual, the the way that the brain can work visually and how that can be an asset. And I think in the same way that some of us can be really good at English, but really bad at maths with violins, that's a big, you know, I think that's a really big issue that these skills can lead to being able to do extraordinary things. And if you don't have that specific visual reasoning, and if that's not coming naturally to you, then you might be you know, flogging a dead horse to try to be that person who can identify stuff. And that's not a bad thing because you can probably do other things just as well. And you know, when I look back on my childhood, we live very close to an airfield. And, you know, my dad would have been so happy if when a World War II fighter came by, if I'd been able to tell the difference between a Mustang and a Spitfire. And actually, I bought the books about planes when I was sort of eight, nine years old. And very quickly, I was able to tell him that that was a Spitfire Mark 4B because it had a clip wings and stuff and realizing that actually those sort of details that sort of interest in something that you're interested in is something which I had my brother didn't have but he's very good at maths and he would never have the aptitude that I'm able to do on that kind of stuff thank goodness and yeah I think I think that's really sort of it starts with, you know, whether you're just good at that, like whether you're just good at drawing. When I was uh, when I was 16, I got a job. Uh, I left school, wanted to work in auctions and got a job as a trainee apprentice at an auction house, Stanley Gibbons. And in England, in the auction scene, you just got a job on anything. So I ended up in postage stamps and for years, for, for three years, six years in total, it was just looking at looking at postage stamps in a company which had the biggest reference collection. So every week I was looking at, you know, the equivalent of looking at sort of being have a lineup of ten strads and tell you know, being able to say what year they're from and stuff like that. I was having exactly that training with these, you know, tiny little pieces of paper, which which after three years I just need to say that I never want to see a patient stamp ever again in my life. <laughs> I do want to say this story is very British of you. When I asked yeah. you why why you're an expert and you spent the first two minutes saying everybody's excellent, everybody's got skills. Well, it's it, it's I mean it's it's actually the amazing thing that I've I've met restorers who have I I can't name names obviously, but there's a brilliant 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 restorer. And we had this English cello, which was completely up my street, and I could, I couldn't figure out who'd made it. I had it down to a few, a few makers, and anyway, we sort of timed out, sent it off to restoration. It came back, and in having tea with said restorer afterwards, he just sort of mentioned that it was stamped on the ribs with the maker's name. <laughs> <laughs> at which point it's like great do you have a photograph and it's like no <laughs> and it's like well can you remember what it said and it's like 
no. <laughs> and so don't you think it would have been at least interesting to me at, at some level? You know, even if I if I knew what it said, it would be kind of good to have a photograph of the name of the maker so that I could show a potential person. It's like it hadn't occurred to me that you'd want to do that. It's just a nice English cello. And uh, <laughs> And you know this this guy is one of the gods of restoration and the total lack of intellectual interest in 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 the in the piece of wood that he's fixing apart from the fact that he can make some of the best repairs in the world is uh, it it floored me but it's it's actually the whole nature of the violin and again I wouldn't rate that restorer as a maker either Mm-hmm. Because there are people who can't restore as well as him, who would make far better, far better instruments, and it's you know it's it's that amazing thing, and that you know why I think it's so important not to beat yourself up yeah. if you don't mm-hmm. if you seem to be falling short at identification, which is the most abstract mm-hmm. of all of these things, and you know got the geekiest. I think you hit the nail on the head with uh, being interested in something and you know, letting that interest guide you into other fields. How did you then get into studying violins and bows and identification there? Well, I I simply got into instrument making because I couldn't bear to see another postage stamp after three years. It was just, (laughs) and I thought I wanted to go to university. There was a university course in instrument making. And I thought because I played the violin, I'd spent a lot of time as a kid repairing boats. So, I thought, you know, I can I can go here, have a load of fun, have a hobby for life and never touch a violin again and get a proper job like a grown up. And unfortunately, what I kind of realized when I was there was that, you know, for some reason, an, an old instrument would come into the workshop. The other the other students would sort of look at it and, you know, the best that they could come up with was that they could do better purfling or a nicer <laughs> varnish or whatever. And and I'm thinking, hang on, you know, this violin's come from a professional musician. It's here for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I can see why this one's different from another one. So so there's obvious difference. And it took me years to be able to then, you know, unlike dealing with postage stamps where you're told that one is rarer than another, to, to actually sort of create your own catalog in your brain so that you can you can measure because difference is not necessarily better or worse so how do these things translate to each other and just you know it's ex- constant exposure to get to a point where where I could have relative ideas of quality and value so where from your time um doing the postage stamps and i hope you didn't lick these stamps either by the way like that didn't happen right very old no okay no, good really just not. making sure <laughs> it could explain a lot maybe but <laughs> but okay so going from postage stamps to the violin trade you went through school but how yeah. did you really start i mean because I, I feel like you have to see so many instruments and bows somehow so how did you start implementing your you know, newly earned discerning eye from the posted stamps and fighter planes. How did you apply that to instruments or how did you really well, develop that more? I think what was lucky is when I was dealing with postage stamps, which I really do not want to talk about and I'm talking about far too much is, I mean, for example, uh, I mean, there's about half a million different postage stamps in the world. 
And as a sort of appraiser, sort of antiques roadshow kind of person, you needed to know that there's actually about 30,000 that are interesting. Quite a lot of those 30,000 are formulaic in one way, sense or another. So it it actually comes down to after that half a million, you're going to make your money on those 30,000 or so. Of those 30,000, you probably only need to know about 10,000 facts. Only. (laughs) But then you've got to know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I say that, but if you think about going from start to finish on a violin, from the facts of how to use sharpen your chisel right the way to how you clean your varnish brush, you're you're getting to several thousand different different little skills just to make a violin. So you know, it's still we're talking about you know we're talking about comparable things in a way, but. Yeah, then you know you only need to know a few, some thousand facts, which is not too much, and probably less facts than words if you're acting in a Shakespeare play. But within that, you know, I had the privilege of you know every week for a year I was shown ten penny black stamps, and the thing is that there's thirteen plates that they come from, which are worth between a hundred and fifty thousand pounds there's 120 different plate positions on each. And I had to be in a position where when I browsed through someone's someone's stamp album, I'd know if that's a plate 11, which is worth 50 grand, or a plate one, which is worth 100, without, you know, without being able to flinch and being absolutely certain about it. And that was that was the continuous kind of training, you know, about tiny details which, to my surprise, I hadn't never intended that this was a foray into the violin world. But of obviously, violin's a bit bigger than a postage stamp. In some sense, there's more things to look at. In some sense, the things that you've got to look at are much bigger. Yeah. So, Ben, in your in our field, if you were going to give someone advice on how to see, how to ID, what would you tell them? So the one thing I've taken, about 1998, I think it was, Charles Beer gave an interview to the Strad magazine, and he said, I'm going to quote him in a very unfortunate way. So if he's listening, Charles Beer, if you're listening to Omopod, I'm sorry. (laughs) But he said back in 1998 or so that really nobody could be the same expert as he is, because in his day, he could come into the shop and there'd be five Landolphers of the best sort. Yeah, lined up on a table and you could really learn those and what I've done is I've said okay well I can't but I can take you know five Colin Mezans I can take five five Wilm Hudson's or Joseph Hills or anything like that and you know so long as there's something that we can look at and we can begin to learn what a maker's what what an entire maker's work can look like and in the same way that Charles Beer can certify a Joseph Hill because he's seen five Landolphies. I've got a chance of knowing what a Landolphie is if I'm doing the same thing the other way around. Mm. And I think for the real practical things, because even that takes capital and expense and all of that, when you're working on an instrument, be it copying an instrument or or restoring it, start with that little thing. Start with all the questions that that is. Try to look at others, see how that's like it, and make that little project. So an example of a little thing would be what? 
so you're literally you're you're doing a you're restoring a Roth. So they're interesting. There's all sorts of different models. Uh, you see plenty of them. So what what are the things that make a Del Jesu Roth look the same as a Stradivari Roth? And you know, start to just work on that. Okay. Because even if that's something where the answer's obvious, it's in the label, you're actually, you're just getting that little little thing into how a violin maker works. Because Stradivari is not is not actually that different from Roth in the ways that he's working. Um, mm. I think look at Strads, because how are you going to tell the difference between a Vion and a Becker in terms of their uh, in in terms of their relative position to a Strad, unless you're always looking at a Strad, mm. right? So the Cremonese that that the the origins of all the models are always important because you can see how how far short people come and and the the quirks as, which prevent them from getting it right. One more thing, you started this off mentioning your personal enthusiasm and perhaps a quirk of your brain that led you down this path mm -hmm. of ID. But do you also feel like it's something that can be a, a taught? defect of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a strategy for uh, other people for this being accessible to them? I think so. I'm I'm lucky that. Well, I don't know if I'm lucky or not, but I've self-taught myself. I've been very lucky that I've been able to go to lots of auctions. And I've also very been lucky that very early on I was able to go to museums. I mean, I, I see so many violin-making students who go to the London auctions for the first time and that scattergun approach that, you know, everything's different and everything's probably wrong. Yeah, that you're not going to become an expert if you're relying on auctions. You've got to go out and see stuff. So, you know, when I was doing my degree, I did my little niche was to write a dissertation on Barrack Norman, which meant that I had to have a look at a lot of Barrack Normans. And that's sprung off, you know, that be, by being able to know about that little one thing and that next little thing and so on, that it's those, it's those things bit after bit, which just give the confidence and the cohesion to look at other stuff. The other thing that I think is really important is history. And you all know me as a complete history geek, but that relates into things. If it's a Steiner copy, there's only certain places and certain times when that's a Steiner copy. So it's not going to be something that's not. You know, if you've got a long pattern Strad, one of the bizarre things about Italy is that after Antonio Stradivari died, no Italian maker copied a long pattern Strad. It's bizarre, but so if you've got that, it's, you know, likely to be either a Parker or something English or, you know, you've, you've delimited it to something and you're not going to waste your time looking at those things. So, and the more that you can have that narrative going in your head and, you know, just start with a, a good history of stuff, then you're going to know a little bit better what you can eliminate until you're proved wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like you sort of organize your areas of focus. You don't just go and look at a Colin Mezzan, then a Roth, and then a Lupo 
one right after the other and try to take in everything you can, you you try to see numerous examples of each one? I think, so that's always a running thing. There's always got to be, you know, there's always got to be several examples of one maker in, in my workshop. And, yeah. and that's an absolute given. And that will, you know, that will evolve from one to another. Yeah. And uh, I was at uh, Florian Lanehart, so I was at a f- shop in North London and they had a problem with a, with a Wilm Hudson and, or with a violin that they didn't know what it was. And in the end, I brought 10 Wilm Hudsons up we put them <laughs> we we put them on 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 a bench and someone who may or may not have been florian said oh this is you know this is really amusing for me because normally when i have 10 violins on this sofa they're all strats and <laughs> <laughs> yeah which was fine i knew i know my place i'm quite happy with that but i was able <laughs> to tell what this instrument was and he wasn't so you know i, I win yeah <laughs> and yeah. but you know that that constant thing, and then say so you've got to look deep, but then again, you never know what's going to come through the door. You can't exclude that, and you know because you're getting these waypoints along the line, you get a universal view. Yeah, but if you just rely on going to the auctions, it's going to be really difficult. As you're looking at all of these different examples, let's just say you have ten Willem Hudsons. How do you go about cataloging what you're seeing? Are you real disciplined about that, or do you just take it in and try to remember it? So I, I, I learned something some while ago when I was writing, which is that you, you write you write an essay or whatever, you write a blog, and you think the words are all there, and then you read it out, and before you've got to the end of the first sentence, you realize that there's 10 grammatical mistakes. And that's because the part of your brain that is that is essentially writing, that's moving your hands on a typewriter, is not the same as the thing that's looking at stuff on the page. And it's not the same as the stuff that's listening to your voice talk it. And it's just it's just amazing to just go through that little experiment to see how how the different parts of your brain can be you know, can do different kinds of cognition. And with that in mind, I'm not going to advocate talking to yourself, but that might work. And I will deny that I talk to myself. But even if you can't draw, it's fine if you can't draw, but draw all the same. Scrolls, sound holes. Sound holes are impossible. You can draw the top and draw the bottom and you get lost between the two. But draw these things. Draw what you see. Draw what corners look like write stuff because it's putting it into your brain in different ways so so when you actually go and write down systematically everything that you see it's not it's not just for the sake of having something that you can refer back to on paper but it's because it's putting it in your brain that in that other way so if your written notes can be completely expendable disposable they're still worth making because it's just forcing you to to push stuff and it's one of the things that i worry about the proliferation of photographs at at the moment is that it's not making you think sawyer thompson welcome to omo we're really glad to have you and you are coming to us from thompson violins in philadelphia pennsylvania 
Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Now you're in Philadelphia today, but who knows where you will be tomorrow? There's a bit of that. Yeah. I um, recently returned from Ireland where I had spent almost two months uh, finishing my second cello bow. So uh, I was working with Gary Leahy in County Mayo and it's uh, been really enjoyable. So but good to be home. Fantastic. I definitely want to get back to your bow making, but I think we need to start a little earlier with Sawyer Thompson. I was really anxious to have you on this episode because I think you are one of the rising stars in the violin trade, one of the budding experts. And since I met you in 2016, it's been really fun to watch your progress, uh, especially in developing your eye, which is the whole you know, subject of this particular episode. So I just wanted to talk to you a bit about that today because you are in the throes right now of really doing that. Not that it's something that ever ends, but um, let's talk a bit about that. You came to the violin trade as a player, correct? Correct. Uh, I'm a cellist. Uh, Well, was a cellist. I still play, but at this point, it's just for my own personal enjoyment. I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music, got my cello performance degree. And, you know, I guess I should go back a little bit earlier just to get into my my love for the actual instruments and bows. I started playing in a public school program at the age of 10. And, you know, at that time, it was a rental fleet that the students were using. And it was, you know, some milling cello. But when I went to get my first decent cello, I started, you know, Googling at the time I was maybe in like seventh or eighth grade. And I was shocked at some of these instruments and, and how old they could be. And I remember even in you know middle school, staying up late at night, browsing you know the internet and you know, Christoph Landon's site comes to mind. I remember, I think the first old cello I saw was like a Cassini, Antonio Cassini from maybe 1665 or something like that. And I just, you know, something about the, the age of it, the just how incredibly beautiful it was. I just couldn't believe that something could be that old. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, from very early on, I, I was kind of obsessed and just kind of a geek about things. Yeah. So, uh, and how long had you been playing at that point or was that right from the beginning? Just a couple of years, yeah. you know, once I, once I realized that, you know, there were a whole variety of cellos that could be played, I wanted to figure out what the options were. Right. So that lit the fire under you to start exploring maybe what everyone else was playing. Yeah. And I guess I would say that the real point at which that occurred before I went to college, I was looking at, you know, professional level modern instruments. And Larry Wilkie, who's a fantastic maker in Connecticut, only makes cellos. He has three different models, you know, Stradivari, Montagnana and Gefriller. And at that point, I really got into, okay, what makes these different instruments um, sound different, appeal to different players? And that was a real rabbit hole. So I would say that was the time in my life where I really wanted to figure out, you know, what's going on here. And I settled on a Montagnana cello from him because it had a bassier sound and, you know, it's um, great for quartet playing and chamber music was always one of my favorite things to do. And yeah, at that point, once I had the cello, I needed a bow. Ah. And bows for me were really just immediately fascinating. You know, I was kind of a Harry Potter nerd growing up, <laughs> and there's you know the whole thing about the wand choosing the wizard, 
And I just could not believe the difference in sounds that different bows could make on different instruments. And so for me, there was definitely a magical kind of unexplained element to that, that I was really drawn to. And that really, um, I haven't looked back, you know, it was, and bows are fun in that sense too, you know, cause you can have more than one, you know, most people only have one instrument, but bows, you know, you can, you know, gather a decent collection. Well, so. they definitely take up way less space than an instrument or many instruments. That's so that's true. I think it's, I think we could do an entire episode only on bows and geeking out purely on bows, but I do find that's where you are kind of living in the area of expertise. Would that be correct? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I deal in instruments, but in terms of, you know, what I'm going to put my own time and effort into uh, financially as well, I exclusively deal in bows. Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there are plenty of people who have good knowledge to very good, great knowledge of both. Um, but I think to really, really be a great expert, it's necessary to focus on one or the other. Yeah. At some point you had to start logging things in your mind. You had to start seeing instruments and bows and taking that information in. Did that happen before you decided to get serious about this as a profession? It did. My, my years in college, again, I was constantly shopping around for bows, always looking at instruments. You know, my idea of a good time would be to visit Chicago or New York and go into the shops and just, you know, look at everything they had. And oftentimes they were willing to show me stuff because they could, you know, tell I was very enthusiastic about them. So you were spending time in violin shops looking at different bows. And I guess at that point, because you can go into it and a lot of people will just take in information, but they don't know what to do with it. Right. What did you start doing? Well, I remember um, one of the first tests of knowledge on Facebook, uh, there was JNA Beer. They had their Facebook page and they had weekly identification games. And so they might post a scroll or just an F hole or a back of an instrument. And, you know, you would comment and, you know, state your guesses to who made it. And I was actually pretty good at that. I, I won a couple of those competitions. And at that point, I actually wrote them an email. This was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And instead of going to a chamber music festival or music festival, I ended up spending a summer at JNA Beer. And they were very, very kind to let me come into their shop, basically have full access to their archives, the instruments. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I you know, went into their vault and, you know, they, they pulled out, I think it was 16 Stradivari violins, you know, dating from his earliest, you know, 1667 to quite late, you know, 34, 1734. And at that point, I, I realized, I was starting to realize anyways, that my, my love for these objects actually was greater than my love for playing them, you know, in terms of just visceral reactions. I've, I can't say I've ever had the same reaction to performing a piece of music as I've had to looking at a great Strad or Tort. So at that point, I, I was more and more certain that, okay, this is what I want to do for a career. Cause that's another um, unfortunate reality is that it's, it's a bit easier to make a living dealing in these things than it is playing them. 
So after graduating uh, the Cleveland Institute of Music in 2015, I took a gap year to decide, do I want to continue with performance or do I want to transition into dealing? I ultimately decided to go down the dealing route. And at that point, I sold my modern cello, my Lawrence Wilkie, um, and I used that money to go to my first auction in London. <laughs> and I came home from that auction with five bows and I sold the very first bow I had purchased um, to Jamie Laredo, who's, you know, quite a well, legendary figure in music. And I haven't really looked back since. So that's, that was when the ship was out on the water then. That's when you decided, okay, I'm going to be a dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Selling your cello is a way to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up auctions. At that mm-hmm. point in your life, okay, you're at the beginning of I'm going to be a dealer. I want to really study instruments. You'd spent some time at JNA Beer seeing the best of the best. Did you know at that point that your trajectory was to be an expert? Was that like your goal? I wouldn't say it was my goal. Mm-hmm. I knew that I might have the potential to do that just because I, you know, do have a rather good memory. You know, with, with instruments, I would say it's, well, instruments and bows, you know, I, I would say it's almost photographic. I'm much better with that than names, for example. So I, I would say it's selective. But really, I just I just loved bows, you know, loved bows as instruments as well. And if I could see as many as I could, that was, you know, a great day for me. So this entire process, you know, it's, you know, seven or so years that I've been going to auctions. I've never necessarily thought to myself, okay, this is so I can be an expert, right. you know, part of it was just for the career, uh, making money, but also just genuine love for what I was doing. Yeah. You're following your passion. Yeah. And something that has gripped you. All right. So let's talk about those seven years. What have you actively done? Cause you're all over the world, literally tell us some of the adventures and some of the things that you've done in order to develop your eye in order to see the best of the examples, the worst of the examples. Right. So one general thing, I mean, I've, I've, I've never necessarily been afraid to ask to see things. And I found a general, you know, good rule of thumb is if, if you're willing to show what you have to somebody, they'll usually be willing to show you what they have, because that's the only real way to learn is by, you know, studying many, many, many things. Not all great. You know, some are not great. Um, so I would just say viewing as many instruments and bows as possible and not only viewing them, but actively deciding for yourself each time, what do I think this is? And assigning a name to something, you know, it's, it's forcing you to say, okay, even if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm making a decision, right? And it could be as quick as just looking at a bow for a minute. You know, it's not always a high stakes thing. One thing from you know, watching your adventures on Instagram and just talking to you. One thing that stands about you out about you is you take phenomenal photographs and you're taking photographs of details that aren't your traditional. This is a photo of a Kittle, you know, side profile of the handle side profile of the head. You're taking all of these angles that really reveal some features of the bow that are really details that make that bow stand out. Can you talk a bit about 
these types of tools or methods that you're using to study? Yeah. So I guess you would say most of the photos I share are not quote reference photos. And the whole point of reference photos is to get consistent, you know, two-dimensional shots that, you know, are reference for reference. So I would describe my photos as being slightly more aimed at provoking emotion, Mm -hmm. I guess, seeing the beauty of, you know, it could be wood, it could be, oh my God, this chamfer is so exceptionally well cut. I, all I do is look at bows and I spend a lot of time doing that and I love photographing them. And I, I guess I'm just trying to get people to see them in the same way that I do with that same kind of appreciation, which oftentimes, you know, can't necessarily be found in a reference shot. And, you know, I, I always use, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time I'm using just natural light, you know, sunlight coming through a window and I could just be struck by something in that moment. Like, you know, there's a sunset. Wow. This wood looks really great in that light. And then I'll take a photo and yeah, I just, I'm obsessed with bows and I'm, I'm trying to get people to see them as I do. So, um, would you say that this is a form of you committing these details to memory or do you do other things to like, do you have a notebook that's going to be the, you know, when Sawyer Thompson passes away, it's going to be sold at auction for so much money because it's got all the secrets. No, I am tremendously unorganized when it comes to that type of (laughs) documentation. Um, I would say 90% of the time I'm, I'm solely going based off of my memory and okay, have I seen this before? You know, with expertise, the intuition is so important. I, I genuinely believe that Isaac Salco, who I would consider to be one of my greatest mentors, you know, he, he, a great quote of his is, you know, torts look like torts. And if you think about that, it sounds quite basic, but on a fundamental level, that is the truth. You know, there's, there's a hand that is unmistakably tort. And it's really hard to put that into words at times. You know, there are specific details you can point out and look at, but at the end of the day, I think intuition and that first instinct is so important. With expertise, something that I kind of got into, a lesson I had to learn early on was to avoid trying to convince myself of something, Mm. which is very easy to do. You know, you have an idea about something and it's like, okay, well, I want it to be this. And so you might look for certain details that lead you in that direction, but oftentimes that, you know, you could be clouded by that desire for it to be something in particular. So the value of just looking at something and saying, okay, what is that right off the bat? I think that's an important, it's not the end all be all, you know, I, I view certain details as affirming in nature. It's like, okay, well, I think it's this and then, okay, I'll check that detail. Yes, that works out. That's what I expect to see. One thing I also actually on Omo heard Chris uh, Rooning say is, you know, expertise is not something that's like a magic trick. It's not this just like thing that you gifted with Absolutely. Um, that you really do have to approach it systematically and you can learn different methods of doing this. Would you agree with that? 100%. And to quote another great figure in the field of expertise, um, when I met Charles Beer, he told me, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said, it takes 10 years for you to believe you know what you're talking about. And it might take another 10 years for people to believe you. So there's definitely expertise is earned. It's not gifted to you. 
I have the passion for it. I have the drive for it. And I, I need to continuously study and look at bows and it's a journey for yeah. sure. So yes, I, I agree. I think that phrase right there, expertise is earned is very poignant. And I think that's a great spot to leave uh, Sawyer Thompson with this particular part of this discussion on expertise. So thank you for being with us today, Sawyer. Thank you so much for having me. Well, guys, we're back. Brandon, did you have a favorite moment? I'm going to need a moment with my moments. I'm just going to say. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of, that was great. There's a lot of really good information covered. What was your favorite moment? So, okay. When I listened to Ben talk about the different ways that you process information to commit it to memory, like how you you draw and you take notes and the act of committing that to paper makes it live in your brain a different way than just looking at photos. That really hit me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm envisioning more museum visits in my future, drawing what I see. Maybe, maybe one of those will be uh, coming up in the near future. And, and maybe Ben will accompany me on this museum exhibit. We'll see. Ooh, is that a, uh, are you, is that a spoiler? Well, I mean, if I, if I gave away more, yeah, that'd be a spoiler. <laughs> no, he really did hit on a great point there on drawing it or even having to explain what you see. That's, it just makes you analyze. It's like for me as a musician, if you have to teach something, it just reaffirms how you do it. Yeah. It's great. And they all talked about making a conclusion, drawing a conclusion, whether it's right or wrong that practice of your brain making decision, how that teaches you. I liked that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it makes you have conviction behind what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my favorite moment, I have two actually, but one is I just really appreciate Chris's declaration of his mention, uh, his mission of being a truth seeker. Yeah. Just because it's, you know, it's like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and I don't care if it turns up to be, not what I want. I just want to know what it is. You know, don't try to force it into a particular mold. And also the moment that he said, uh, his notion that an instrument is guilty until proven innocent. I like that. You know, so you basically say, no, this isn't a strad, um, until you prove that it is a strad. And then Sawyer made a, well, his quote about from Charles Beer, expertise isn't learned, it's earned. Part two is coming up for this next one. We focus on the tools of the trade. What does one's library look like? Do we need an endoscope? Brandon. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything about an endoscope, Rosie. Brandon, how big is your black light? (sighs) And we're going to leave that right there, folks. Because we have... Yeah, we need people to listen to the rest of this series. So we're just going to not touch that. Okay. (laughs) Next month's guests, we have Chris Rooney and Ben Hebert. And also joining us will be Claire Givens from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm looking forward to meeting her. Claire is fantastic. Okay, good. 
So guys, thank you all out there for listening, for contributing, for emailing. I appreciate it when I get emailed suggestions. If this stuff has sparked anything of you and you want to know more or you want to contribute anything about this, give us a shout. You know where to find us uh, through social media and you know we're at mail at omopod.com. So reach out. Thank you guys. We'll see you in a month. And until then, keep uh, working on that identification. (laughs) We will too. Keep developing your eyes. (laughs) Keep looking out there. (laughs) Look at all the fiddles. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Omo is the passion project of Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can always connect with us at mail at omopod.com or leave a message on the Omo phone, 240-686-5345. We love hearing from you and are always taking more questions for listener feedback. This episode edited with love by yours truly. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being a part.